Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries and our must-read daily newsletter. So as the third year of Highways Voices comes to a close, I thought we'd finish it by hearing from a few of the 75 or so guests we've been lucky enough to welcome onto the 40 programmes we've produced in 2023. So let's start by going back to the beginning of the year when we heard the inspirational story of James Fellows, a man who went to school with two prime ministers, lived the executive life in New York before losing everything, being institutionalised and then rebuilding his life. He told us about Bridge of Hope, his initiative bringing disenfranchised people like newly released prisoners into the workforce. So they come out, they're offered a job, you get the job in Timpsons in Southampton, etc. The first thing they do on your first day, at the end of the day, they say, there's the takings, can you take it down to Barclays at the end of the road? Now, some people look at them and go, you do realise I was an armed robber in my earlier days, or I had a big fraud or whatever. And the answer is, hurry up, Barclays closes in 15 minutes. Yes. Uh, and nobody's run off with the takings. Um, in fact, when Timson did an article on honesty in the Sunday Times business section, he said every, there's dishonesty in every um, business, it just, it's just a fact of life. Yeah, well. um, he said, but the one area we have no issues ever in our organisation is the group that came out of prison, ever. So that's one, and then one which you probably won't, unlikely to have heard of, but I think they're a fantastic organisation and a great model, is a, an organisation called Recycling Lives. A re- small little recycling, mid-sized recycling company in Preston. And again, when I was setting up the Bridge of Hope, they said, look, somebody said, you've got to see these guys. So went up to Preston, talked to the CEO, and I said, so what do you do? And he said, well, we're just a recycling company, TVs and fridges, nothing very spectacular, uh, but we've grown quite a lot. After a couple of years, it went well, so they created a foundation. And I said, well, what was the purpose of that? And he said, we didn't really know. We'd kind of just created it and then made it up on the fly. And I said, okay, well, how did it go? He said, well, kind of a little bit better than we thought. And so they decided to try and help homeless people um, in the Preston area, really. And so they went around, drove around Preston, and they'd find people and they're like, look, would you like another crack at life or would you like another Carlsberg? And if it was a former, they said, well, come with us. We've got a program to try and help you get back on your feet and put a roof above your head and then a potential job. And so the ones who said they wanted to have another crack came in, put them through a program. You know, this obviously developed over four or five years. And the end game, a bit like Timson's, is there's a job. I'm like, okay, I love it. This is a brilliant, brilliant model. Um, everybody wins. Um, I said, so what were the biggest benefits? And so the CEO looked at me and he said, well, there were three. The third biggest benefit was productivity. He said, it went through the roof. He said they worked way harder than our normal employees. So the employers then had to work harder to keep up with them. That was the third best. And I said, okay, what's second best? He goes, we don't have a word for retention. Nobody leaves. He said, it's acted like a glue to our organization. And I'm like, okay, this is brilliant, but how do you trump those two? And he said, well, that's the one I'm a bit embarrassed about, but it's true. And I said, what? He said, we never lose a pitch. He said, well, when we go to pitch for a business, and let's say it's the recycling in Brentwood, we we're probably against four or five others, and they all put a bid in saying it's going to cost X per ton. Sure. And somebody will say, I'll do it 5% discount, somebody yeah. 15% discount. And they're like, look, do 100 tons, we'll put one homeless person into work. Do 500 tons, we'll put 10 homeless people into yeah, work. Sure. And he said, we win every bid. Because they're just like, of course we want to do that. Everybody wants to do, you know, and the local businesses want to do the right thing. And, and I said, well, what's your pricing? He said, oh, we're more expensive than the most expensive one. <laughs> so it actually proved to be a competitive advantage, a commercial driver, and changed lives. So that was early on in the year with Julian Fellows of Bridge of Hope there on a podcast talking about his new partnership with Keeley Brothers. Now, during the summer,
summer, I was invited to the Royal Automobile Club in Pall Mall in London for a debate on the future of the car, which was run by the Rhys Jeffries Road Fund. Two of the guests discussing this were National Active Travel Commissioner Chris Boardman and first Grand Tour and former Top Gear host Richard Hammond, and both agreed that the car was a successful way of getting about, but they disagreed about what that means. I think in terms of car enthusiasts, the numbers are going to increase wildly, and here's why. When we are offered that picture I just painted of the autonomous, anonymous plastic box that arrives at your front door, a lot of people face with that option, or, where applicable, the option of cycling using a train. A lot of people will suddenly look at their humble polo, Corsa, whatever, their humble hack, and think, I just don't really like it. I like what it what it allows me to do. I like using that machine. And they'll suddenly realise that for the first time they identify as a car enthusiast. And I think those of us who have been gathered round in the centre as though under attack are going to look over our shoulders and realise, wait a minute, nearly everybody's joining us. So I think actually this, it'll polarise out and there will be more car enthusiasts. The car is not going anywhere. Do you get the feeling, though, that you're as a motoring journalist and a very famous one, kind of under attack a bit because it's not the trendy opinion to have that we still need the car. Uh, The car's been scapegoated since its development. I mean, by the 20s and 30s, governments were realising, wait a minute, we can put a massive tax take on this. And not only that, it's a vote winner because back in those days it was only the very wealthy. Now it's still, by comparison with a lot of people, the wealthy that can afford cars, and a lot of voters, if they see a government kicking them, will think, brilliant, have at them. So it's always a vote winner to kick the car. That's why it's been picked on from an environmental point of view, for instance. There's plenty of other things we have to address. The cars account for, was it 27%? I can't remember what it is, of the total greenhouse gas emissions. Fast fashion, food production, all of those things have a bigger effect. Tourism. They've all got to be resolved. The car is just the easiest one to demonise. If you kick cars and car owners, you get votes. If you kick people who buy a new football strip every six months because of the team they support, or a new pair of trainers made on the other side of the world by somebody else's children out of fossil fuel-derived, oil-derived materials, and then shipped around the world where you'll use them for six months before putting them in landfill where they'll sit for 100 years, that's worse. Cars are, are great and they're a wonderful tool and that is is the issue really so we're overusing it for everything and in doing so we've saturated the streets and we've lost choice and so now we have to re-inject transport choice back into the system we have to give our kids transport independence for a myriad of reasons you know we've got mountains of data everybody knows about it and the question of course is that nobody ever asks is what happens if we don't well your nhs isn't going to make it you know, it's 7.5 billion spent every year treating uh, inactivity-related illness. Well, one in six deaths now is attributed to inactivity, which is the same as smoking. Uh, climate change, the obvious one. Third of your carbon's coming from transport. And, of course, cost of living. Well, I've gone down to a one-car family, and mostly I get trains and, and just nip to the station on a bike. Uh, my bike maintenance costs me £20 a year. So we've got lots of incentives to do it, but we really need to be careful if we don't want to do it, then we have to face those consequences and own them too. I've always talked about the fact that if we had a real joined-up government and holistic you could be clamouring to the health department for some of their budget to spend on making it easier. 
Yeah, the active travel agenda actually benefits the policies and ambitions of eight different government departments out of 24, health being the primary one, of course. You mentioned Holland earlier. Their obesity rate is, is almost half of ours. I don't think that's coincidental. And they certainly love their cars, but they have other options. And you know, all of their, their kids, the vast majority of their kids, get to school under their own steam every day in normal clothes. And they're not cyclists, they're just getting to school. And that takes time and it takes commitment to get those kind of choices back into your system. Chris Baldman, National Active Travel Commissioner, and before him, motoring journalist and Grand Tour presenter Richard Hammond from our podcast presented in the summer. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com. Highwaysnews.com. Now, just a reminder that if you haven't already, why don't you join the thousands already following us on LinkedIn and X, seeing our stories as they're published. And you can also find them on our site, of course, and in our unique daily newsletter into your inbox every lunchtime if you sign up at highways-news.com we are and you can join in here if you want the only place you need to go for everything you need to know highways voices hearing from the people who matter in the highways industry another thing we did in 2023 was get the first interview with the new ceo of the local council roads innovation group Paula Clayton-Smith. For me, Elkrig is as much about local authorities as it is supply chain, innovative people bringing new products to the market and everything else that that there is to to see and encourage councils to look at, really. And what's good is the fact that you get it from a council perspective because suppliers might think well the council should buy this and the council should buy that and you you actually follow what the challenges are that the councils have so you can see it from both sides yeah absolutely and I think there is nothing like when I remember when I was in a local authority and the fact that you've been you're you've had your budget salami slice for so many years sometimes that forces you to be more creative but other times it does make you sort of despair and you sometimes sort of sit down with your head down and don't look above the parapet but actually looking above the parapet means that you get to see what other people are doing you can compare their innovations how it's working on their networks and everything else so I think for me it's that that sort of knowledge and experience that that I think I'd like to think hope I hope you know means that when I'm speaking to a local authority they'll be able to sort of say yeah she's been there she's got the t-shirt and and it's a pretty raggedy t-shirt but because you know local government is a is a challenging but a really good place to work what are your ideas then oh wow so i think some of my big ideas are more of what we do well at which is you know more of, of of expanding the events that we do but making them you know more of the interesting things that local authorities want to hear about from other local authorities i think for me the innovation festival if we look at it this year it's it's what double size of last year's innovation festival i can see this practically being the whole showground at some point and you want to keep abreast of things so there's a lot really and also want to work with authorities that perhaps haven't um you know taken part in some of the elk creek activities but equally on the supply chain side but also i think one of the big big innovations was the innovation procurement system i mean that has all the the hallmarks of being the biggest change in the sector for council to be able to procure actually new innovations and and doing that with crown commercial services i think 
think is is a really big deal. Paul Clayton-Smith there as we walked across the huge Innovation Festival outdoor exhibition in Newark. What you didn't see there, though, was that we ended up getting an ice cream together. Swarco improves quality of life by making the travel experience safer, quicker, more convenient and environmentally sound. From software-as-a-service traffic management solutions to parking, VMS, EV charging and road marking too, find out how Swarco can deliver more efficient and safer traffic management. Swarco, the better way every day. In the autumn, we were the media partner of Highways UK at the NEC in Birmingham, which meant we got to speak to a range of exhibitors and speakers over the setup day and during the event. Among them was CEO of National Highways, Nick Harris. What really helps me, and I think what does help the organisation, is in reality our purpose is is quite straightforward and simple which is to help the country grow and we do that by ensuring safe reliable journeys so if we work away from that purpose and it's a great purpose i mean really for me is a purpose that gets me out of bed every day wanting to get stuck into the challenge and just making things better so with that purpose in mind we can then think about well what are we doing um, does it lead to those improvements does it support safety does it support reliable journeys are we doing it in a way that is environmentally sustainable what's the impact on everyone using the road network what's the impact on the communities around so yes a lot of complexity but a very simple mission or purpose and what's the time scale for when we'll get a bit more surety about the publication of RIS3 and what the industry is going to need to deliver on your behalf? So it's the question everyone wants to know. What, what's in RIS3? Where's the money? Um, and as I said on stage, I can't tell you yet. But the discussions are going well. And, and I am confident that it won't be long before the RIS3 draft is announced. However, what I would say, and I touched on it on stage, is we already know a huge amount of what we have to do. So we have to keep the road network running and being maintained. We've got a large number of schemes, many really exciting, iconic projects already in construction, and we have to finish them. So there isn't a doubt about a lot of what we have to do into the next road period. But of course, everyone is looking for that certainty. And we didn't just have officials on the podcast, but we heard from politicians too. In a moment, the Shadow Roads Minister Bill Esterson. But first, the then Minister Richard Holden, who was extolling the virtues of the new national parking platform. I remember, you know, those uh, not that long ago, being in Middlesbrough, uh, turned up one afternoon on a, on a visit myself, a political visit, get to the, get to the local area got to download a new app it's raining it's dark the last thing you want to have to do is go through the entire rigmarole again and then you're going to try and remember the login when you've been there six months before you know the national parking platform should really solve that once one place where you can really access all those services i just think it's a it's a no-brainer um and i think it'll be really positive just for normal people's interaction on an everyday basis and i just I'm so keen that local councils across the country just get involved as quickly as possible because it'll just be a huge benefit to the road users. And actually, if you're going to somewhere which isn't part of it, then you'll be less likely to go back. Right? This is actually a big pull. You know, I want to get all local councils in it because it benefits them. We ran a story on Highways News this morning about the letter that you've written to all chief executives. Does it frustrate you, though, in a wider 
view as being roads minister and local transport minister that you kind of have to cajole local authorities into doing things whereas you've got a direct route to Nick Harris at National Highways for the strategic network local roads it's a bit harder to have that one holistic view it, it is a bit harder but I, I, I want local areas to have that control over their roads but when we're pushing them just to do purely positive stuff which nobody could object to I just really want them to get on board as quickly as possible. Another example is the um, lane rental schemes, right? There are a few of the councils really involved with that now. On the, uh, and I want to see every single council have one. It means more cash for the council. It means fewer delays for the motorist. What's not to like? You know, they just need to get on and do it. And sometimes getting them there is the hardest bit. There is so much uh, excitement here about the opportunities available in highways. And that's true of the transition to low carbon in transport but also in the technology that's been developed in road surfacing as well and I think we have some of the best examples of the technology available right here at this exhibition and uh, in, in, in the UK. My view is that if government is a partner, has a, a long-term strategy that gives confidence to investors, we can make the most of it in this country for, to the benefit of of the industry, but the people who work in it, communities up and down the country, and actually fundamentally the whole economy. It is about the certainty, I think, when I talk to technology uh, suppliers, innovators, inventors, about the idea that once they've got the technology actually perfected, there's a market for it. and. Some of their complaints are often over the capital expenditure versus the revenue expenditure. And as, as we get more technology that maybe is on a license rather than a one-off payment, they're struggling more to get uh, the money coming in. Is there a way that we can look as an industry at a different way of funding in order to kind of reflect what's happening here and now? If Labour wins the election next year, we're going to review all major capital projects. We're going to look at value for money by setting up an office value for the money. We're going to look at spending on projects like HS2 and indeed COVID because we, we're pretty sure that we've not had money spent as effectively as we could have done in the last few years. Uh, but more importantly, I think, is the certainty of, uh, of having an industrial strategy, having a transport strategy, having a roads strategy that enables investors to make long-term commitments that means that when projects are committed, everybody knows they're going to happen and they're going to be delivered and they don't get changed every few months. We have that, that certainty that gives the value for money and the ability to really make most of the technological uh, developments that, that are going on right now. Labour's Bill Esterson and before him the then Roads Minister from the Conservative Party, Richard Holden, talking at Highways UK. And that wasn't the only event we reported from. We were in Lisbon for the ITS European Congress too, where we chatted to a host of British innovators and a very impressed British ambassador, Chris Sainty. As British ambassador, one of my responsibilities and one of the things I take most seriously is my job to advise and to support British companies who want to engage with the, with the Portuguese market, who want to sell into the Portuguese market and export their goods and their products and their services here. I've got a fantastic team here in Lisbon uh, working with me from the Department for Business and Trade. But of course, something like the ITS Congress is a sort of brilliant ready-made opportunity for British companies to come and sort of exhibit their, their product to a, an almost captive and very expert Portuguese and, and European audience. 
And so it feels like it's too good an opportunity to miss. And, and we're here really just to, to help those companies make the right connections and hopefully do profitable business here in the future. Okay, so you've just come from the Clearview stand. So say Clearview wanted to really crack the Portuguese market with their solar road studs. How could you help practically? Well, I think the key thing would be to, to find them the right people to talk to here in Portugal. It's all about it's all about those sort of personal connections and relationships, and that's where my team at, 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 at DBT, uh, who sit in the embassy, come in, because I've got a dozen or so very very dedicated professionals here who have an almost encyclopedic knowledge of the Portuguese economy, the Portuguese business landscape, as well as a kind of telephone directory of, of, of useful contacts and and, and, and networks, uh, and so. I think the first step would be to connect with, with, with the, the DBT team here in Lisbon uh, and take it from there. They will, they will then create the connections that would enable good business to be done. And finally, I'm always fascinated to meet people at events who don't necessarily have the understanding or knowledge of anything involved in transport technology. So I'm just interested, you in inverted commas as an outsider, what do you make of some of the innovations that you've seen on the UK pavilion today? It's absolutely fascinating. I've got to be honest with you, Paul, I walked in here half an hour ago not knowing very much about uh, intelligent transport uh, systems. But in that half an hour, I've met half a dozen very exciting, very creative, very innovative British companies, all very enthusiastic about the technologies that they've been developing. And it's already very apparent to me, and I'm very proud to, to be able to see that, that, that the UK is clearly right at the forefront of this, this sector. We're here at the Congress with a very prominent stand, and, and I, I very much hope this will lead to some great business deals in the future. Of course, one thing that has happened since then is that the UK has been chosen as preferred host of the 2027 ITS World Congress and our impressive stand in Lisbon must surely have helped with that. Now finally one of my favourite guests on Highways Voices has always been behavioural scientist Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy. Now he spoke at the JCT Traffic Signal Symposium in September and before that we heard from him promoting his slot when he talked about his book Transport for Human it's well worth listening back to all of that chat and in fact a bit of his speech at the JCT but here he explains what humans tend to measure is often very different to what we in the industry measure and use as proxies for deciding what is a good service if you want to kind of parallel in this okay if people say a room is too hot there is a physical way of solving the problem which involves air conditioning and reducing the temperature of the room. But there's also what you might call a mind hack solution, which is you put in a much cheaper dehumidifier and that will make the room feel cooler. Those of you who've been to America will know that quite often the weather forecast contains both a real temperature and a feels like temperature. And of course, what humans really care about is the feels like temperature. I'm a, the larger man. I basically don't go into London above roughly sort of 30 degrees or even less, okay, because I find it uninhabitable. But I can wander around Phoenix or Scottsdale, Arizona at 105 degrees fairly happily. And that's nothing to do with the temperatures, to do with the humidity. And in the same way, I would argue the Uber map was a very, very interesting psychological hack because what people hate about waiting is much more derived from the level of uncertainty than the duration of the wait. I remember that, Rory, from when they introduced the matrix signals on the tube and then, you know, if you knew you were going to wait six or seven minutes for the next circle You didn't line, really mind. 
you no. you kind of at least accepted it and knew. Whereas if every train that came in, you hoped it would be a circle line train. And as we know, there is a rule on the circle line that if you don't need the circle line, it will be the next train that mm-hmm. arrives. And if you do need the circle line, there will be three district or metropolitan lines in there first. That's a perfect example, which is that um, better information. Now, I think Transport for London have difficulty justifying passenger information at bus stops and at tube lines because the investment does not materially improve uh, journey quality. Quality as defined there involves some sort of physical world metric of speed, frequency, capacity, etc. Now, I think that's woefully mistaken because I'd go so far as to say you can obviously improve a journey by giving someone something entertaining to do while they're waiting. One interesting question I noticed from the Lisbon underground is, for whatever reason, they have coffee shops on the platforms where there's space. Now, that strikes me as quite an interesting idea, because if you do have a 10 minute wait and you have the option of buying some coffee, For a significant number of people, it probably makes them feel less that they're in limbo and gives them something entertaining and worthwhile to do. I flew home from a holiday last month and waiting for the bags to arrive. Funny you say that. I've been ranting coffee there. I've been ranting because, of course, bear in mind that if you've been on a plane, you probably, unless you're in first class, you probably haven't had a proper coffee. Okay, and I've been weirdly ranting about the complete lack of retail opportunities between landing and collecting your luggage. And I I mentioned this to British Airways. It's completely weird that no one takes the opportunity to sell anybody anything just as a kind of pastime activity while people are waiting for their bags to arrive. I mean, airports, you might argue, are an exercise at airside departures. Airports are an exercise in using retail or some form of retail therapy to kill wait time. So wise words, as always, from Rory Sutherland, as I say, one of my favourite people to chat to. And we'll be back in the new year with more of our podcasts. Now, if you have any requests for who we should talk to or what we should cover, then please let me know and we'll see what we can do. But all that's left for me to do now, though, is thank you for listening all year. Thank my fellow Highways News journalist and friend Adrian Tatum for all his hard work all the way through 2023 plus the team behind us that help us out including ed and jack and i remind you to tell your colleagues about the podcast and finally leave you with a plea to please have a very happy christmas we'll speak in 2024 highways voices the podcast from highwaysnews.com